Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at julieandlisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Okay, we're going to get started and we'll admit folks as they come in. So thank you for joining us. A couple of housekeeping matters to start with. Um, everybody should be muted um, automatically when you come in. We just ask that you keep yourself on mute during the presentation. If you have a question throughout the presentation, you can send it in the chat. It will come to us as hosts. And if we have time at the end, we will try to take at least some of those questions, especially those that are have a common theme, and we will answer them uh, at the end. And we uh, had received a lot of questions through the form that we sent out. We have all tried to incorporate answers to those questions in our presentations. But again, if you have any questions, feel free uh, to put those in the chat. And we just wanted to start with a brief introduction. I'm Lisa Levin of Run Farther and Faster. Julie Sapper is my co-founder and co-coach of Run Farther and Faster. Um, just also, if you want to put the view in gallery view, you may be able to see the speaker. I'm sorry, in speaker view, you may be able to see the speaker um, better. But um, Julie and I decided, along with Rachel Miller, ProAction Physical Therapy, that there was a real um, need for information for women, masters, women runners on how to run through, through and beyond menopause. And we were lucky enough to be able to partner with Dr. Toby Beckerman for this part one in a two-part series on running through menopause. Just a little about myself and Julie, we co-founded Run Farther and Faster over a decade ago, and we work with men and women of all ages, all distances, all levels of experience. We coach virtually, before virtual was even a thing or cool, we coach individuals virtually all around the country and all around the world and really individualize that training to the to to the runner and we also host a weekly podcast the run farther and faster pod podcast this is our third year doing the podcast and i know many of you um, listen to that so um, we welcome you um, and we really do pride ourselves on getting to know our runners individually to ensure that we're structuring their training in a way that allows them to reach their fullest potential in their goals, whatever those are. And um, we are also masters female runners ourselves. So this is information that we wanted ourselves um, and, and that we also uh, know that we need to, to have for our runners. So I'm going to turn it over to Julie to tell you a little bit more. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're really excited about this webinar. This is part one of a two-part series. And as Lisa mentioned, we've been coaching runners of all ages for over a decade. And through our experience, we've grown to really understand the unique needs of masters women runners, especially those managing menopause. And we decided that we needed to share what we've learned so that we can all be armed with the information we need to continue to run strong and injury free. So we're kicking off this webinar tonight. We are so thrilled to introduce Dr. Toby Beckerman. And Dr. Beckerman is the founder of Beckerman Women's Health. 
She's been an OBGYN since 1988 and started her own practice in 2009. She is also an integrative gynecologist. She has been practicing um, since 2009 where she has created a unique special GYN practice that would give women time, connection, comfort, and cutting edge medicine. And the reason we are so thrilled that Dr. Beckerman is specifically joining us tonight is because she is an expert in menopause management. Following Dr. Beckerman, we are really excited to have top DC area physical therapist and owner of ProAction Physical Therapy, Rachel Miller, joining us. She is also a certified running coach um, and a master's runner as well herself. And she is going to share um, her expertise on how we can optimize our training and stay injury free um, during, during menopause and following menopause. Rachel's been working with runners for over 25 years and is a certified orthopedic clinical specialist. She works with runners of all abilities, all ages, including master's women, master's women runners, and again, is a runner herself. After the conclusion of this webinar this evening, we will send you an invitation to join, to register for part two of our Running Through Menopause series. That will take place on Sunday evening, February 28th, also at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And for that webinar, we will be focusing on nutrition and strength training for masters women running runners to manage menopause. So without further ado, here is Dr. Toby Beckerman. Hi everybody. So this is amazing that there's so many people that are on because um, it just tells me how much a need there is. And um, the first thing I wanna say is that you guys are all ahead of the game already because anybody who is a runner into athletics um, which is one of the reasons why you're on this and got this invitation already is ahead of the game because staying in shape and exercising and taking care of yourself is one of the primary goals and one of the things that will get you through menopause very easily. Second thing I want to say is that my um, goal here today is to really educate you because I think that there's so many fears with menopause and what's gonna happen. And here I am one way this week or this month and what's gonna happen to my body and am I gonna be able to keep up? And so my philosophy is to really try to dispel a lot of that fear and to make you understand what's actually going to happen and even more importantly, what there is to do about it. So I wanna start with, and the other thing is, as that as we get older, we get smarter. There's no question. Our bodies might change a little bit, but we really get smarter. And I think using our smarts is really important. And I have a great little story that I wanna just start with. So, um, so the high priests, not the high priests, the Levites in the time of the temple had jobs to do in the temple. They would do the sacrifices and people would bring them money and they were very, very busy in the times of the temple. Well, when they turned 50, they were then given the job of a gatekeeper. So normally you would say, wow, like what a demotion. Here you are really part of the whole process of the sacrifice and everything else. And now all of a sudden you're given the job of a gatekeeper. But what does a gatekeeper do? A gatekeeper really understands who goes in and who goes out. And so they have that wisdom over time. And so as we get older, um, and this was at 50 that they were given that, as we get older, um, we have more wisdom. And so we should take pride in that. Um, so that's how I like to start. Okay, 
So what is menopause? So menopause is the time when our ovaries, I'm just going to give you sort of the strict definition, when our ovaries no longer function. Okay. So when our ovaries, which are the primary source of our hormones, no longer function, our body no longer makes estrogen. And what is estrogen useful for? Estrogen is very important for very key areas of our body. The first being our heart, the second being our bones, the third being our vaginal tissues, the vulva, um, our sexual drive, and um, the fourth being our mood and um, what balances us in our life. So those are the important um, components of what estrogen does for us. And when that no longer happens, what happens to us? So the strict definition of menopause is no period in a year. That's the strict definition. Now, does that mean that if you're beginning to have symptoms that you don't like, that are beginning to bother you, I'm gonna go into symptoms in a minute, that you need to just ignore them and say, well, I'm just gonna have to sit here and suffer for a year. Absolutely not. I don't hold any patient ever to have to go a whole year um, feeling terrible. So it's very important that that's a strict definition, but that doesn't have to be a definition that means that I can't go seek help. I can't go to a doctor. I can't find out what's going on with me. Okay, so if that's the strict definition of menopause and what's perimenopause, people ask that all the time. And there's really no black and white answer to what perimenopause is or to actually when it starts or how long it lasts. So the average age of menopause, average, is 51 and a half. Perimenopause can start any time before then. And of course, that's the average age. You could become menopausal at 55 or 56. But perimenopause is a period of time prior to the onset of full menopause that you begin having some hormonal changes. Now, if you are a woman who menstruates, which if you've not had a hysterectomy, most of us do, there are obviously other reasons, birth control pills, IUDs, and things like that, that someone might not have periods, but generally your periods will begin to become irregular. You might begin to have night sweats. Maybe your periods are coming every other month or every few months. That is a perimenopausal period of time. Do you need to do anything about it? No, you don't, unless it bothers you. And if it bothers you, then indeed you need to see somebody, talk about your symptoms and see what's going on and what is the best treatment for you at that period of time. So. That's the definition of menopause. That's the definition of perimenopause. Okay, so somebody asked a question about, well, what if I've had a hysterectomy and I don't have periods anymore? So I don't have that as a guide. Certainly having periods is something that is very easy for us to observe, but hot flashes is the number one symptom that we find with menopause. They can be in the day, they can be at night, they can be mild, they can be severe. And that is usually the number one symptom. So if someone's had a hysterectomy and they no longer have periods, when they continue to begin to have hot flashes, moody changes, maybe not sleeping well at night, noticing some vaginal dryness, those are all times to go in to a physician, practitioner, whoever it is you're seeing and talk to them about your symptoms and begin the process of how am I feeling and what am I gonna do about this? So that's definition of menopause and perimenopause. Okay, so how should women advocate for themselves? I think I answered that just a little bit. Um, it's very important that you recognize what doesn't feel good and that you 
see somebody and speak to them about it. Now, just because you're in your 40s and you don't feel good for whatever reason that might be, um, Julie was mentioning earlier in COVID, people sometimes are getting hot flashes in COVID or they're cooped up or they're not sleeping well or having anxiety. Does that mean that you're perimenopausal, you're 48 and you're having these symptoms? Not necessarily. So every abnormal symptom that you have does not mean that you're in menopause. And that's important because you don't want someone to say, ah, oh, you're a woman, you know, you're going through hormone changes. You might, that could be. And that may be what the sole source of your issue is, but there could be other medical things going on. There could be thyroid issues going on. There could be infectious processes going on. There could be vitamin deficiencies. There's all sorts of things that can also mimic abnormal symptoms. So it is very important that you find somebody that you trust, a practitioner, a doctor, nurse, whoever you're going to see, that you begin to form a bond, form a relationship with. And I think that relationship will really enable you to open up and see what happens over time. Sometimes things evolve. We don't often make a diagnosis bingo right on the bat when somebody is in the more of the perimenopausal phase. So it is very important that you find somebody you trust. Okay. So let's assume someone is completely menopausal, 52 years old, and terrible hot flashes, no periods for four or five months, not sleeping, really feeling miserable, and they come into my office. So what do we talk about? Well, you need to be treated. This is not something that you can just say, okay, you're in menopause. So let me let me define that again too because this is something lisa and julie and i and rachel also we were talking about beforehand many people think there's premenopause there is menopause when you have your bad symptoms that you're not feeling well and not sleeping and then postmenopause i'm over it i'm over that menopause you're never over menopause, meaning this. You might be over the bad symptoms of menopause. You might be over the hot flashes and sleeping, but the long-term effects of menopause, the effect that menopause has on your bones and has on your heart and has on your whole genitourinary tract, your vagina, your bladder, um, as, we, as you guys are all interested, your muscle strength and your athleticism and your stamina and what happens to the fattiness in the middle of your body that you never had before. Those are things that will persist. So everybody will is a menopausal woman once their ovaries have stopped functioning. So you don't go, you can go through menopause, meaning I'm going through that period of time where I'm very uncomfortable and I need to do something about this. And the something about this is where we're going to get to in a second. But after you've treated those acute symptoms, things that are really not making you feel good, all of the medical things on the other side are very, very important for us to address. And those are important things for maintenance of your health from a general healthy standpoint and from all you guys listening for your athleticism and your ability to keep up your running and your exercise and your muscle strength and so forth. Okay, so the number one treatment of menopause is hormone replacement therapy. I'm gonna talk about hormones. I'm gonna talk about, because I think it's a huge um, important thing for you to know the facts. Everybody's afraid of hormones. Out there and things that you read and you open up, hormones gives you cancer. What cancer generally people are referring to, it's breast cancer. I'm gonna go over numbers. I'm gonna go over risks and benefits. And that is the number one treatment of, um, of menopausal symptoms is hormone replacement therapy. 
So again, prior to menopause, your body was making estrogen and progesterone. And so when we are giving somebody replacement for hormones, we are also giving them estrogen and progesterone. Why do you need to give both? So the other thing I want to say, which I probably should have, is what I'm telling you is very factual. However, there are people who feel differently. So if you pick up a magazine or you pick up a book and somebody disagrees with what I'm saying, not disagrees, but thinks they need, everybody needs estrogen and progesterone or just needs estrogen, there are different philosophies um, on how hormone replacement therapy should be managed. Again, you find a practitioner you feel very comfortable with. The information I'm giving you is very factual in my mind, but there are people who philosophize and think different ways. There's a lot of literature out there. I don't like to poo-poo anybody as being right or wrong, but I'm going to give you what I feel is my best um, uh, approach to this. So if you have a uterus, you need to take estrogen and progesterone. Estrogen is really the hormone that we need. And for a woman who's had a hysterectomy, um, estrogen alone is actually probably better than estrogen and progesterone together. And the reason is because there was a very big study called the Women's Health Initiative that came out in 2002. Let's go back for a second. Prior to 2002, almost all doctors, cardiologists, family practitioners, OBGYNs, when their patients became menopausal and were having symptoms, they were given hormone replacement therapy, the combination of estrogen and progesterone together, because there was a substantial amount of data that what hormones does is affects your bones and protects osteoporosis, that it protects your heart against heart disease, which is the number one killer of women, and it protects the vaginal tissues from becoming dry and atrophic. It protects the bladder because that's very dependent on the strength of the vagina in terms of uh, protecting um, against different kinds of incontinence. And it certainly protects you against hot flashes and sleep and mood and so forth. And so almost all doctors gave it. And what would they say the risk of breast cancer was? Roughly about 0.3% above a baseline. So a woman who has is a low risk of having breast cancer. Every single woman who has breasts has a risk of getting breast cancer. We would say on average, the risk is 1.3% per year for someone not taking hormones. So if you added 0.3, now your risk is 1.6% per year. Well, the thought was, well, wow, I mean, if you're protecting your heart and your bones and your vaginal tissue and feeling good and sleeping good and becoming yourself again with all your energy and your gusto, it certainly would be risk beneficial that you have a small increase in the risk of breast cancer. What happened at 2002, this big women's health initiative study that came NIH was um, came out in the summer. And what they said, I'm just going to really summarize was that, oh my goodness, we found that there's an increased risk of heart disease in women who took hormone replacement therapy. It was one of the biggest and maybe the first biggest double-blind, randomized, well-controlled study, meaning the group who took, a group who didn't take, which is the most proper way to do it. And this is what they found. Well, it scared people a lot, scared doctors, terrified patients. A lot of patients were taken off their hormone replacement therapy. Fast forward 18, 19 years, what's the bottom line? 
when they started that study, they took all takers. So anybody who wanted to be in the study, and it didn't matter whether you were 55 or 65 or 75, anybody who wanted to be in the study was taken. So at the end of the day, the conclusion is as follows. If women became menopausal at 51 and you waited 12 years or 15 years or 20 or 25 years to start them on hormones, they might have already built up a little bit of coronary artery disease. Well, if that happens, all of a sudden, 20 years down the road, you challenge them with hormones, there can be a small increased risk of heart disease. And that's where the big blow up was and that's where the scare came. The good news is that's very well recognized. We know now that if you start hormone replacement therapy in the first 10 years, particularly in the first five, but even in the first 10 years of becoming menopausal, you actually protect your heart against heart disease. And that is very well established in the literature. And so that women's health initiative, whereas it scared people initially now, we know that there, and they took a small subset of women from that study who were in their 50s, and those women in their 50s had a lower risk of heart disease. So it's very clear that hormone replacement therapy started within the first 10 years of menopause, protects the bones, protects the heart, protects the vagina, sleeps better and really takes care of menopausal symptoms. Now, what was the risk of breast cancer in the study? It actually was lower. It was 0.1% above a baseline. So rather than even the 1.6% that we were accepting prior to that, now we feel the risk is 1.4% per year. It's a very small, tiny amount for all the good that it does. So the other good thing that came out of the study is we used to give just pills. Right, The standard, the gold standard was a hormone, a pill called Premarin. Premarin is equine estrogen. It comes as an extract from pregnant horses' urine. That was how they were able to synthesize um, estrogen at the time. That's what was given. That's what all the studies were done on. The beauty that came out of that study, because everybody was so afraid and people came off hormone replacement therapy, was that many, many estrogens have come since then. And many of them are not given. In fact, my first line is always, if we can, not to give estrogen pills, but to give estrogen either in a transdermal form, meaning a patch that goes on your skin, a gel or a cream that you rub on your leg or your arm, um, or a vaginal ring where you put it in the vagina and it gets absorbed from the vagina systemically into your system. So when hormone therapy is given that way, actually, there is probably an even lower risk of issues. And the reason is this, when you take pills, it goes through the liver and the breakdown products of estrogen are different than the breakdown products of pure estradiol that gets absorbed directly into your skin. And we feel like those products actually may not even be linked with breast cancer, whereas the breakdown products of the other has that tiny minutia risk. So there is a big push to giving transdermal hormone or transvaginal um, hormone replacement therapy now. Um, and it works beautifully. Okay, what is bioidentical? I just have to say, talk about this because a lot of patients will say to me, I want bioidentical hormones. It's natural. And if it's natural, it's safe. So that was a bit, I think, of a marketing um, tool that people used in the beginning when they were trying to differentiate 
pills that you took in hormones from quote unquote natural hormone. This was really before we had a lot of the transdermal and the patches and things like that. And what a compounding pharmacy would do would be make up their own concoctions of pure estradiol and give it to patients to put on. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. There is not anything wrong with getting hormones from a very good, reputable compounding pharmacy. I will tell you that the National Association of Menopause Society and American College, OBGYN, things like that, actually are not so in favor of compounding hormone pharmacies because they feel like they're not regulated. Okay, so I've been in practice for a very long time. I feel that there are compounding pharmacies that are very bright and very much know what they do. And I would never want to poo-poo that. But there's no lower risk with compounding than with others. So when patients say, I want the natural stuff because that's not linked with anything with breast or that's not linked with any problem, that's pure natural hormone, that really isn't the case. It's very similar to the FDA approved sort of bioidenticals that we see. Okay, um, what about alternatives? So there are many patients that are still afraid of hormones. Even if I go through this whole spiel and try to tell them that the risks are very low, you know, any association with breast cancer can be fear, fear, can make people very afraid. And there are people whose sisters have breast cancer or their best friend or their mother, or they have a history of blood clots, which can be an, a contraindication to estrogen and other things. And so each woman is completely individual. It's so important to find a doctor that goes through all of these things with you Every person is individual and every concern is and every fear should be taken really with um, a lot of thought in terms of deciding what's right for people. But hot flashes, trouble sleeping, those are the things that really bother patients the most. So if you're not a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, there are excellent antidepressants on the market in low doses that are used for hot flashes that work beautifully. There is one called Brisdale. It's a low dose Paxil, which is a sub-therapeutic dose of Paxil. It's actually approved by FDA for hot flashes. I use a lot of a drug called Effexor, another antidepressant that can also be excellent for hot flashes. So that if people, you know, if they say, look, I, I know you're telling me all these great things about estrogen, but I'm just worried. I wanna try something else first. Um, there's certainly things that you can go on. Trouble sleeping, there's melatonin. There are all different kinds of sleeping aids and so forth that I can't even begin to get into now. There are supplements that you can use. Black cohosh can be um, very helpful for certain people. Um, there's different types of Swedish pollen plants that I use as supplements. I mean, to be honest, I find they're all good. Nothing compares with hormone replacement therapy the way that these other supplements do. But by no means, if you're not a candidate for hormones or you just don't want it or they bother you or you go on it and you're not feeling good, your breasts are tender, or there's other symptoms that you can't try something else. But the most important thing is please do something. There is never, ever a reason to suffer in menopause. There's acupuncture. There's mindfulness. There's yoga. There's so many different things that you can tap into that can really help you with your symptoms. But most importantly, don't do nothing. Okay. Where do you want me to go from here, you guys? 
real quickly, Toby, about um, about uh, bone scans and when to get a bone scan. That was a question that had come up. I don't know if you want to touch on that and bone right. loss. So osteoporosis is um, a, a can, has potential to be a huge problem. And women begin losing bone when they become menopausal. They lose the majority of their bone mass often in the first five years of becoming menopausal. Now, that's what's so important about hormone replacement therapy, but there's also a huge genetic component with bone loss. So it's very important to know your genes. It's very important to know your medical history. Are there contributing factors? Do you have thyroid issues, which would be, are you vitamin D deficient? Are you calcium deficient? How have you been taking care of yourself? Are you sedentary or do you exercise? All of these things are very important. I don't do a bone density on patients until they become menopausal. So I don't, you don't have to be 50 and get a, a bone density. I wait until somebody stops menstruating and at that point I get it, unless they have significant risk factors. They were anorexic and didn't have a period for years and years and are worried. Or their mother at the age of 50, all of a sudden her first DEXA had terrible osteoporosis. We have wonderful drugs for osteoporosis not including hormone therapy, which is fantastic. We have wonderful drugs with very low risks and significant benefits, um, which again, I can't go into in detail. People are always afraid of the osteoporosis medications, again, because of, unfortunately, the way things are, are put out there in our educational system, it, it seems to play a lot on fear rather than on truth. They're safe, there's wonderful drugs to take. The best things you can do to prevent osteoporosis are doing what you're doing, exercise, um, resistance training, weight-bearing exercise, um, make sure you take vitamin D and calcium. Those are crucial. Now, a lot of patients don't like calcium. Calcium will constipate them. The best way to get calcium is in your diet. I know part two of what you're talking about is nutrition. That is the best way. But if you can't get in your diet, because you just don't eat those foods. It's very easy to get a food sheet and find out what is there. But you may look at that and go, there is no way I'm getting a thousand milligrams a day. I can't do it on this food sheet. There are excellent supplements. Again, things that you can specifically tap into. Um, vitamin D, a lot of patients say, well, I'm gonna go out in the sun. That's not the best way to get it because we like your skin to be protected and everybody should be wearing a very high SPF, which means if you're doing that, you're not getting the same vitamin D absorption. It's easy to take vitamin D. Nobody has side effects from it. And actually um, vitamin D can be very associated with strengthening your muscles and strengthening your bones. So vitamin D is very crucial. Um, one thing about resistance, and I know that um, this is Rachel's territory um, and she's gonna talk about resistance, but one question I did get is what's more important, resistance or um, cardio in terms of training in, in menopause? So resistance is fantastic for your muscles and your bones, but don't forget cardio because we know that the number one killer of women in menopause is cardiovascular disease and heart disease. So your cardio is crucial. So strength, yes, keep your muscles strong and strength. Um, but it's also very important um, to make sure you're doing cardio. Okay, I'm gonna throw in testosterone really quickly. Um, testosterone. Testosterone is not approved 
um, in, in this country, I'm not sure in any country, for use for women. But I use a lot of testosterone. It's only made up at a compounding pharmacy. And there is a lot of literature very much supporting testosterone for strength, for clarity, for brain fog, for um, endurance, um, certainly for libido as well. So it's something that you really need to speak to your doctor about. What are the pros? What are the cons? It's a little off the beaten path, but it can be very helpful. It's important to get that proper information about testosterone in terms of um, the risks and benefits of it and um, and where to get it and how to get it and how to use it. There are various ways, but it can be something as a, as a very important tool in menopause. And in fact, I have patients who use testosterone that don't go on estrogen. So each again, person is individual. And the beauty is we have so many tools. We have, you, you get a good history on a patient, you listen to them, you find out what their fears are, what their issues are in terms of concerns, what their life goals are. And then you lay out this fantastic repertoire of things and you choose and you choose with them and help each patient choose what's going to be best for them for menopause. But the important thing is never suffer from menopause. There is no reason in this day and age that anybody on this Zoom or anybody you know has to think menopause is going to be the end of my running career. It's going to be the end of my sex life. It's going to, I'm going to get fat. I'm going to get fat in the middle. Um, exercise, great nutrition, low carb diet. Um, these are all things that are crucial in terms of that sort of middle tire that sometimes people get. Um, all of those things worked methodically out can be taken care of. Am I at my time? <laughs> so we're going to pass it over to Rachel, but real quickly before we do, we had a couple of questions come in about, um, is there a particular calcium and vitamin D supplement that you recommend or a particular amount of, of calcium, um, a dosage? So a thousand milligrams of calcium a day is standard. And you can get that from food. If you go look up a food sheet, milk, a cup of milk, 300, almond milk, 300, yogurt, cup of cottage cheese, those things about 300. Sardines with the bones, if you're someone who likes them, they're amazing, 450 milligrams. Broccoli, parsley is a big one, so you can look it up, but 1,000 milligrams a day. I like the more natural calciums um, because I think they get tolerated better. If you can get it in your food, that's always number one. Vitamin D depends on your level. Everybody should get a vitamin D level checked. Normal vitamin D is 30 to 100. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. You can become toxic with vitamin D. So don't go out and buy a bottle of 10,000 vitamin D and eat two or three a day and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to be great with my vitamin D because you can get hypervitaminosis D. It is a fat-soluble vitamin. So 30 to 100 is normal. I like my, my patients to be between 50 and 60. I'd rather you be on the high side. Very easy to replace that, yes. Vitamin D3 is what you need. Thanks, Toby. We're going to hand it over to Rachel. Thank you, Toby, for um, that wealth of information. I mean, I, I was taking notes, so it was wonderful. And I'm going to touch upon some of the things that you mentioned that um, how our body changes with menopause. I'm also going to talk about signs and symptoms of injury, because as runners, we, we have aches and pains, but what is actually considered like a red flag or an injury? I'm going to go over some... Um, Injuries that may be due to menopause, but as Toby said in the beginning, it could be because we're aging. It could be because we're not getting enough sleep or our training. So I'll still touch upon them, but it not, may not be the cause, you know, menopause. 
And then I'll go over how to manage these changes to optimize our running and to help prevent injury. And then I'll hand it over to Lisa and Julie about training. So um, Toby spoke at the end about a bone density. And yes, our bone density does decrease um, uh, with menopause. And uh, it's just important to know, especially if you have osteopenia or osteoporosis, I've seen too many times stress fractures, usually in the foot um, with menopausal women. And oftentimes, honestly, it's because they're not listening to their body. They've already had the pain, but they keep running. So I'll talk about that in a minute, but I do see stress fractures in the foot, sometimes in the lower leg and the tibia from that. Once in a while in the hip, and those take a longer time to heal, I find, to return back to running. Um, also with menopause and a decrease in estrogen, there's, um, a reduction of the body's ability to build and to maintain strength. And of course, when you think of that, you think of running, but that does not mean that you cannot maintain and build muscle mass um, as we get older. Menopause or not, we can. And I'm gonna talk about that in a little bit. Also um, with the decrease in estrogen, the elasticity of our collagen. Collagen makes up a lot of our soft tissue like tendons in the body. And with that less elasticity in those tissues, you become stiffer. I don't know about you guys, but honestly, when I turned 40, I just became stiffer. I don't know if it was menopause or not, but it definitely affected my running. And I'm gonna talk about how to address that in a little bit as well. Um, someone asked a question before we were on about speed. Can I get faster um, with menopause? And Julie and Lisa are gonna talk a little more about that. But what also changes with menopause is the type of muscle fiber we have. There are two types, there's type one, which is more of an endurance fiber, muscle fiber, and there's type two. Unfortunately with menopause, type two fibers are reduced in our body. So certainly it can affect our speed, but all hope is not lost is what I want you to get out of this. Um, also Toby mentioned the hot flashes, which is obviously a huge sign of menopause. Um, because I think we're runners and we're kind of used to getting hot, I think hopefully maybe we can handle that a little bit. You can run through hot flashes. You don't have to say, I have to stop. You can run through them. Um, it's not just estrogen. It's also different parts of your brain that are affected too. Um, so just remember that you, you can. Some studies show, they're honestly, when I research this, there's unfortunately, there's not a lot of research. There really isn't a lot of research of how menopause affects running physiologically and affects runners injury-wise. So some say that people who women who exercise more have less hot flashes. I have nothing to support that. I don't know, but that's what some some they say. Also, I find that um, I know with menopause, blood vessels don't expand and contract um, as well as they did prior to menopause. So something you can think about is using compression socks or compression um lower leg stockings, either while you run or even after you run. And I find those are very, very helpful for blood flow. And the last thing I'm going to touch upon, but that's a this is a whole nother topic, is with menopause often comes pelvic pain and also incontinence. You may be running and you're leaking um, urine. You may laugh or sneeze and you, you leak. And um, one question came up, and I think many people have this, is, is surgery the only answer? And the answer is absolutely not. Physical therapy can very much help pelvic pain and incontinence in men and women, actually. It is a very specific specialty. I am not a specialist, but I know what they do. So just so you know that if you do go to a pelvic 
uh, floor specialists, which I have a list of and I use often, um, this is what you should expect. They are going to look at your pelvic floor muscles. They can use ultrasound and see if you're actually contracting the right muscles. Um, so they could see it on a screen. They will do an internal exam and an external exam. They can give you homework, both internal exercises and external exercises. And it's a wonderful way, a wonderful way to address the continence issues as well as the pelvic pain. Um, don't be afraid of it, embrace it because this is your body and you don't want menopause to control you. You wanna control what you can. And I know Toby has um, something to say about that. Yeah, I don't, want to I don't want to take up too much of your time. There is something new on the market. Um, it's called Emcella um, and it is a chair that you sit on. It is a magnet, takes 28 minutes to sit on the chair. You do it twice a week for three weeks. And it is the equivalent of doing 11,000 Kegel exercises in a 28 minute session. That kind of um, uh, stimulation to your pelvic floor has been shown to really, really make your pelvic floor um, much better and to be able to support your bladder better. I, I'm happy to go into it at another time. It, suffice it to say it's out there. Some people poo-poo it, but it's some, there's some excellent solid data on it. And it is an alternative to a surgical procedure for stress incontinence, mixed incontinence, and so forth. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. No, thank you. Thank you for the information. And you mentioned kegels. So I think all of us know what kegels are, right? It's where you try to... Um, Actually, I do it sometimes, to be honest with you. Look, we're talking about menopause. We're all women, gotta be blunt. When I urinate, sometimes I'll stop the flow and then let it go again. And that's a way to strengthen those pelvic floor muscles. So that's one way you can do it. Um, but again, a pelvic floor specialist can truly um, positively address those issues and, and really help with that. Now, I wanna talk about um, just signs of injury because I find that people, um, sometimes runners, you know, we're used to running hard. We're used to running through pain. We're racing. We feel it all and we want to do our best, but you have to recognize when something is hurt because then if you don't recognize that you can't fix it. And most of the issues when people show up into my office because they didn't recognize it or they didn't listen to their body. So um, a red flag sign of pain is um, I, I call it the pointer test. If you can point specifically to where you hurt. Maybe it's the side of your knee, maybe it's the center of your butt, maybe it's the bottom of your heel. To me, that's a red flag sign. Usually a general, um, general soreness that lasts a day or two is very typical of a runner, especially if you had a hard workout, a long run that you weren't used to. Um, it goes away in a couple of days, there's no swelling, it doesn't impede your everyday lifestyle. But that red flag type of pain is more localized. You can point to it. It's usually maybe a little very tender and it's maybe a bit warm to the touch. And um, you have to pay attention to that. When you have that red flag pain and it usually lasts, it lasts more than three days and it creeps into everyday life. You wake up in the morning, you step down, your heel hurts. You're walking down the stairs, your knee hurts. These are not normal aging things. People say to me, oh, I'm 60, it's supposed to hurt. No, absolutely not. It's supposed to hurt. Maybe when you're 100, I'll give it to you, but not when you're 60 or 70 even. I have runners who are hitting 80. Um, you shouldn't have certain types of pain. The injuries that I see more with menopause, and again, there's not a lot of research, but I can tell you anecdotally what I see in my office. 
Achilles tendinopathy. Now there's a difference between tendinitis and tendinopathy. Tendinitis or anything with an itis is an inflammation. So it's more acute, it just happened. I usually see more tendinopathies where at that point you've had it for so long, there's no more inflammation. There's no, no, no more inflammatory cells. It's just scar tissue. It's much harder to heal. Usually I see that from training errors, pushing through pain. Sometimes it's aging too. I also see it in the hamstrings up, up high by your, by your butt, by your glute. So those are the two things that I find, whether it's menopause, whether it's aging, whether it's poor training, um, it could be many different things, but those are harder to heal. I find that heat helps a lot in those areas, better than ice. I find that massage, if you're having a pain behind your ankle and Achilles, massage it right away. Five minutes, it may hurt a little bit, but it will help increase circulation and help loosen up that scarry tissue. For the glutes, the hamstrings, it's a little harder. I really like a tennis ball. People have told me they use foam rollers, but from the shape of the foam roller, it's hard to kind of get in to that area of where that tendon attaches into your pelvis. I find a tennis ball helps a lot. Now, if you're having a lot of pain over that area with that tennis ball, then use the tennis ball around it. Sit on the ball, but work around that area. Sit on your ball if you're having piriformis or center of the butt pain right here, sit on it and roll around that area. But anything to loosen it up and increase will help, increase circulation will help. Now, someone had a question about plantar fasciitis. Could it be caused by menopause? Um, honestly, I really think plantar fasciitis, this person's had it for years and they've tried everything. I often see it's, it's, a, it's a problem because of probably ignoring the symptoms, probably not wearing the right shoes, not just running, but during the day as well, when you work. Now we're in the pandemic and I find people are actually walking barefoot a lot more. So be careful of that because you don't have that cushioning and support and people are having a lot of heel pain from that. Also with the pandemic, remember now you're walking your dog 10 times a day and now you're hiking and now you're running still. So there are other factors with plantar fasciitis, but again, I think heat helps. And again, I, I, I don't know because I haven't diagnosed you. So you do, as Toby said, you need to have a thorough evaluation to see what's causing your problems. Um, someone asked me, what is the number one advice to give to runners in menopause? And my first bit of advice is listen to your body, understand what menopause is. I guess maybe that's, that's two. And one thing that I see that I, I, I hope this is the number one problem that I see is that um, people aren't taking recovery days. You were running six or seven days a week 10 years ago, and you still wanna run six or seven days a week now. That is the number one thing I want you to take away from this that can help prevent injury and help address any injury that you have now. And Lisa and Julie are gonna talk about that. And one other thing I'll just mention quickly, is don't underestimate cross training. So that's where I'm gonna go into now um, what to do about these menopausal changes versus bone density. So yes, we run, right? We love to run. I do it to keep me sane. I tell my kids it makes me better mom because I'm not as cranky. So running is good for me. But when you have bone density issues, osteoporosis, osteopenia, a family history, the, the pounding is wonderful, right? The weight bearing. People swim as well as cross training. I love that. It's not gonna necessarily help with the osteoporosis, osteopenia, the bone density. Walking, elliptical, anything weight bearing. Bike is semi-weight bearing, I'll call it. 
Um, but anything, any exercise you do is, uh, Toby said this, you're a step ahead because you're trying to take care of your body. Um, weightlifting, you can get stronger in menopause and postmenopause. I'm gonna say this again, you can get stronger. I have read articles where it says, you know what? We lose muscle mass, we lose this, we lose that. You can get stronger. I find heavier weights work best. Now that I know people talk about HIIT training, the high um, intensity interval training. The one thing I'm going to say is where I feel people run into problems is form. Before you lift, you have to make sure without the weights that you're doing the lift correctly. If you're trying to target your glutes, which by the way, in hamstring tendinopathy and Achilles tendinopathy, I usually 90% of the time find that your glutes aren't firing. So not only are they weak, but like you're not even turning them on. You're doing a squat, but you're doing a squat with your quads, not so much your glutes. So that's where physical therapists can come into play of what's working and what should be working. Look, if you're going to spend the time strength training, make sure you're using the right muscles. Um, so I usually recommend, and we're going to talk about this in part two, but I usually recommend eight to 10 reps, two to three sets, two to three times a week. Now, Kelly Redmond's going to talk a lot more about that. And it's just a guide. Everyone is different. Strength training should not hurt. You should feel fatigued, but, but not pain. But form is, is huge on that. And people have heard me talk um, in, the, in the past, because I see a lot of familiar faces, and I, and I love the new faces too, is running is a single leg sport. You could do all the squats you want, but you're on two legs. So as we get older, and I'm not going to blame menopause, but there is one thing I will blame age on is our loss of balance. Now, I'm not going to say when we're 50, but I have seen in the 70s and 80s, very anecdotally, that we lose our sense of balance on one leg. Now you can test your balance out. You should be able to stand on level ground for 10 seconds without holding on and without your body swaying all over the place. If you can't do that, think about every time you, you run and you take a step, every step you take, you take about 800 to 900 steps every mile you run. You're going to be off balanced if you don't have balance on level ground. Say you're a trail runner, trail running is great. And it's a fine line between helping your balance and also spraining an ankle. So doing single leg exercises, even without weight, like single leg deadlifts, single leg mini squats, step ups can really um, help work on your balance and carry over into your running. Um, stiffness, I'm going to get to now too. I usually see in menopausal runners, not just stiffness overall, but specifically in the pelvis and the hips. I know for me personally, I have felt that. I just, I get up from my chair, I wake up in the morning, my pelvis, maybe my lower back and my hips are stiff. What you can do about that, um, yoga is, is good. Um, I actually started and I'm not getting paid by Peloton, but someone gifted me a Peloton app. And there are these five or 10 minute yoga like hip openers. And I tried it and I, gosh, I felt better. <laughs> so doing pelvic tilts, we're gonna go over this part two as well. Movement with your pelvis, movement with your hips. Now, should stretching hurt? I ask this all the time when I give talks. And the answer is no, stretching should not hurt. I always tell people stop at the first barrier. I usually use my finger as, as an example. So if I take my finger and if you take your finger back and stop when you feel the first stretch, it should be right about kind of halfway through. When you stretch, that's where you should stop at the first barrier. Then maybe after 15 seconds, 
you can go further. Now I can go further right away, but it's not so comfortable. So be careful with stiff um, tissue because you don't wanna stretch it too hard. You may be more susceptible to tearing that tissue, these micro tears. And the last thing I'll talk about is training, which Julie and Lisa are going to get into, your form. Um, because of the stiffness that we have, I usually see stiff knees, like when you land, you just don't have that spring. So if you have a physical therapist who understands runners, who can videotape and, and look at your form and help you modify to get that spring back just by how you, you run, can be extremely helpful. And of course, modifying your training, as I mentioned before. So um, we're going to take some more questions at the end. Um, we're going to give out our email addresses at the end. You can very much follow up with us um, afterwards, but, but thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. As always, you are a terrific wealth of information. And one thing in particular that you said, Rachel, that really resonated with me and, and I think really is the theme of this is control what you can. So we're here tonight because we want everyone to be armed with the information that you need to optimize your success as a runner as we go through this time. And your advice and Toby's advice certainly resonated with me and I'm sure everyone else that there are a lot of tools in our toolbox that we can use. So what Lisa and I are gonna talk about specifically is how to adjust your training. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, we would be more remiss if we didn't talk about the importance of perspective and shifting our perspective because all of us are here because we love to run and we love the process. And if we are fixated on our times, particularly our race times from 10, 20 years ago, for those who've been running for a long time, then we're losing out on the joy of running. So we're not here to say, give up on your goals or don't try to achieve the best you can be. But what we're saying is we very much believe that how you frame your running and your training and frankly, your goals outside of running will determine your success. So comparing yourself or pining at a PR that you may have achieved in your 30s is not productive. But we're not saying that you can't achieve new PRs during this time. You certainly can, but you likely need to change a stimulus to do that. So what we mean by that, for example, is that if you haven't been training for several years and therefore you haven't necessarily reached your potential yet, then sure, um, you'll likely PR. Or if you haven't meaningfully structured your training, maybe you've never hired a coach or followed a specific plan for a specific race goal, then absolutely you have an opportunity to achieve your best times yet. And we're all here tonight because we wanna be better. And as masters runners, we already have an advantage and that is Masters women runners in particular are the most dedicated, efficient, and smart runners out there. And that is an advantage. We already have the mileage, we already have the experience, and putting that together with changing our perspective and establishing a new framework for ourselves where we can really enjoy our running, set goals, but set goals that are reasonable and set goals within a framework where we can control what we achieve is a way for us to really enjoy this time, enjoy challenging ourselves, enjoy, enjoy reaching new heights and new goals without feeling that sense of disappointment or looking back and saying, oh, but I didn't PR, stop it. 
just stop that and think about your future and think about all the things that you'll be able to do moving forward. So our theme before we get into the nuts and bolts is take stock and where you are right now and start from there rather than comparing yourself to the person you were 10 or 20 years ago. You'll be so much happier focusing on your goals during this time instead of simply focusing on your times. So Lisa is now gonna talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts and some of the things we can do in our training to optimize this time. Yeah, thanks, Julie. I think that's um, really important that we remember why we do this because we love running and because it, you know, Rachel talked about it being her time to to think, and you know, I think all of us would agree that's our kind of our sanity time when we get out and and we get on a run. So what we want to make sure we do and our runners do and you do is keep running healthy and being able to enjoy the running. And what we have realized over the years through our own training and through coaching women runners as we get older is that we have to modify our training. And um, it's just really um, a factor of a lot of, of the things that Rachel and Toby talked about, um, our bodies changes. And I'm going to reiterate what Rachel said about recovery. That is probably the biggest um, modification or biggest thing that we incorporate into our training schedules and into our master's women running schedules is really looking at the recovery days. And everybody is individual and everyone kind of has their, you know, their threshold. And there are some 50-year-old runners who can run every day. There are some, um, you know, that that can't. But in general, and really, we found um, that recovery is, is critical. And, and it's hard for a lot of runners, ourselves included, to really embrace those recovery days, especially if you're used to running six, seven days a week. Um, we find that a lot of runners are just like, I don't wanna take a rest day. So what we've found is that is really important with their recovery days is to look at that as a training day. Your training that day is recovery. So does that mean sleeping in two extra hours because you don't have to get up early for a run? Does that mean doing some mobility work? And we'll talk about this more in part two, but um, Rachel, Rachel alluded to this, of that tightness that we get. Um, mobility is something we've started incorporating into our runners' routines that has, the, the feedback we've gotten in our own personal experiences is that it really makes a difference. So maybe on those recovery days, your workout is your mobility routine and it's not, you know, it's not something tiring or not something that's gonna wear you down. But those recovery days are, are really important and, and if you're somebody who's running every day, um, we think taking those recovery days, you're going to see that on the days that you're actually then running, you're getting much better quality run. Um, so related to recovery is also kind of spacing out the harder runs and the easier runs. And, and, and a lot of times what we'll do for our runners is we'll put speed work in the middle of the week. And then maybe on the long run, we'll incorporate some tempo miles so that you're not doing like a tempo run, a speed work run and a long run in a week. We're spreading it out a little bit farther. And um, just to touch on that speed work, that speed work actually becomes more important as we get into master's age and, and in going through menopause and beyond menopause, just for the same reasons that um, Toby and Rachel talked about that, that muscle that we're losing and really specifically the muscle contraction that we lose, that ability for our muscle to contract really quickly. So adding some high intensity, and Rachel touched on this a bit, but adding some high intensity speed work, some um, short sprinting work, some power and speed work into your into your routine is a good idea for women our age. And again, it's really doing it properly so that you're not doing it back to back with a long run and a tempo run and you've got that recovery, but those workouts become, become really important. So incorporating those properly into your, um, into your routine. 
Um, the timing of runs, uh, especially if you're up at night and you're not sleeping well or you're having hot flashes or you're just not feeling great anymore in the morning when you run, maybe doing an afternoon run will you'll feel better. So being flexible on the timing of your runs is something that we've um, seen as we get older is, is really important. And then also, um, you know, Rachel talked about being able to run through hot flashes, which obviously, you know, you certainly can, but hydration and prehydration becomes really important. So making sure that you are hydrating throughout the day, making sure before you go out for your run, you are hydrated. Um, having something cold to drink, cooling your core. And this is something we recommend to runners in the summer when we're going out to run is like, have like, you know, some really cold, you know, water, ice water before you go out, suck on some ice on your, you know, grab some ice on your run or during your race to cool your core. So that hydration um, becomes, becomes really important. So really looking holistically at your schedule and at your training. And um, that's why working with a coach is really important as you get older and your training needs um, change is that a coach can look at that and say like, okay, these are the things that we're going to want to tweak. We know masters runners who've told us, you know, I was running, you know, 70 miles a week. And I just, I thought I always have to run 70 miles a week. Cause that's where, you know, that's where I've hit the height of my height of my training and my, and my performance. And, you know, when I finally cut it back a little bit, I'm actually running stronger now. So maybe having that outside perspective and, um, you know, changing again, that Julie mentioned changing that, that stimulus and changing the way, the way that you train. So really looking, um, you know, at, at your training or having somebody look at it and determining how do we now, um, change the structure of your training, adding in recovery days, adding in some high intensity, um, and, and the strength work and, and, maybe that extra time that you're not running, you're really dedicating to strength. And again, we're going to go into this more in part two with Kelly Redman, who is a, um, a certified trainer um, who does a lot of our work with our runners on strength and mobility. But that strength training becomes, again, even more important uh, because of that, that muscle loss. Um, so that's, you know, those are kind of the highlights of, of training and um, modifying training. I think we'll go back if, if anyone has any questions. Just wanted to add one thing. Sure. Um, when we were taught, when you were mentioning about training and, and mileage, the one thing that we tend to see a lot, and this goes back to my point originally about comparing yourself, is your easy run paces will slow down as you, as you age, that happens, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a huge slowdown in your race paces. So when you are running on your easy days and you're running that conversational pace, throw out the window, this thought, well, my conversational pace is usually X, Y, or Z. All of the factors that we've discussed during this webinar, your sleep, um, just your hot flashes and all of the other things that you're feeling, all of that together, plus those of you that have kids or have aging parents, that's all coming together during this lovely time and COVID, um, that can impact your pacing. So recognize that it's only harmful to look at your garment if you have one and assess your pace and say to yourself, oh, I'm running so slow today. No, 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 you're out running. And a conversationally paced run on an easy day, that's your purpose. It doesn't matter what that pace is on that day as long as it's conversational. Rachel, yeah, yeah. I know you had something to say also. Just just, just real brief. Um, and I ditto to what Lisa just said, because I find a lot of injuries actually occur when people do their long runs too fast. Honestly, sometimes that is the reason why they get hurt. Um, but I also want to say if you are hurt and you feel like you've rested and you're, you're treating yourself like you feel like you should with those tendinopathies or aches and pains that red flag pain, 
Um, go to someone who understands runners, go to a physical therapist who would look at your running form and your footwear and your training program and your strengths and weaknesses, and isn't just going to say to you, well, just don't run for four weeks. Don't go to a gynecologist who's just going to say, oh, you're having these symptoms. You know what? Maybe just don't run. Go to someone who really understands runners who will keep you running because there's no reason why you shouldn't. So just don't ignore those um, issues that you're having. Um, reach out to a healthcare professional, as I, as I said, as a physical therapist, go to someone who understands runners and, and don't let it go too long because then it, it takes longer to heal. Just one thing I want to add also to Julie and Lisa. So you were talking about running through the hot flashes and the lack of sleep and things like that. So my take home message would be try to do something about the hot flashes and the lack of sleep because you have other challenges as you get older. All the things you talked about with muscle strength as you get older and sarcopenia and balance and everything else. Take care of the things that you can take care of because there are so many good things to do that. And that will take one little challenge off the table. Yeah, I think when we Great first advice. spoke to Toby, Toby had said to us, you know, you take medications for other, if you have a headache, you take an Advil. If you, you know, if you, if you need it, then, you know, if, if you need it to treat those symptoms, then, then, um, you know, definitely, like you said, treat those symptoms so that they're not impacting your ability to recover and to train. We had a couple um, questions come up that I wanted to throw back to, to Toby. Um, the first was if somebody is has blood work and it doesn't show that they're in menopause, but they're having all the symptoms, they haven't had a period, they're having, you know, night sweats, are they still classified as being in menopause? Is it, you know, is that? So almost always the blood work will show or will show something in between. It, it'll show something. If you're not having periods, there's a reason. Either you're menopausal or you're not ovulating. That can also be something. So the blood work would then show maybe a very high estrogen level. If you go through a perimenopause where you're not cycling regularly, but your ovaries are still working, you're making high estrogen. That can also feel lousy. You feel like you're getting that little bit of tire in the middle and you're gaining a little bit more weight and you may not be sleeping as well. That's anovulation, not ovulating. It's not menopause. It's part of the perimenopause. But we might treat that in different ways. You might be a candidate for birth control pills, depending, of course, on what age you're at. You might be a candidate for progesterone. There may be other things that we try to do. So blood work is a piece of the puzzle. Your clinical symptoms are a piece of the puzzle. You look at the two together. Great. And, and then uh, another question that came up was, um, why do you say no progesterone if somebody had a hysterectomy? So I think that if you look at the Women's Health Initiative, there were two arms of that study. That's the big study I told you, the NIH study, which had a funky conclusion. But so what that showed was the arm, the arm of the study in women taking estrogen and progesterone together was stopped right away, increased risk of heart disease, and they stopped that prematurely. There was an arm of the study that women who had had a hysterectomy who were on estrogen only, that arm of the study went all the way through to its conclusion. And at the conclusion, they showed there was no increased risk of breast cancer. There was no increased risk of heart disease. And this was people who were estrogen alone. So therefore, using that data, I don't feel there is a significance to needing progesterone. I think it's safer to be on unopposed estrogen, which means estrogen only. But we don't do it in women who have a uterus. We are, however, using IUDs, progesterone-containing IUDs in some women, which means you're getting your progesterone local just inside the uterus, and therefore your body is sort of getting unopposed estrogen, but in a way that protects the uterus. There are people who differ with me. They think progesterone is very important, and if I have a patient who's on it or been on it or feels better on it or sleeps on it, 
by all means, I would give it to her, but my preference is estrogen alone. And do, do, um, do women who've had a hysterectomy reach menopause earlier? Not necessarily. Hysterectomy is just removing the uterus. Right. If the ovaries were obviously removed at the same time, they become menopausal right then and there. Otherwise, not necessarily. No. Depends okay. what age. You know, if you have a hysterectomy at 46 for bleeding and fibroids, you may not go through menopause for another 10 years even. So. Great. And then just one last question, unless anyone else has, has some questions, but um, there have been a few questions about hormone replacement therapy and weight gain. What do you have to say about like, what is, what's so I think, right. So um, I think old hormone replacement therapy, um, patients experienced more weight gain. When I say old, generally the Premarin, the old pills that we talked about from equine estrogen. Now we start with the transdermal estradiol. I do not see a lot of complaint of weight gain on hormone replacement therapy. In fact, some people will notice actually less weight gain. We talked about that middle that people begin to experience and nobody exactly knows why that happens with menopause, but estrogen probably does something in terms of insulin resistance. And that's why caloric, you know, uh, caloric, not restriction, but really burning more calories than you take in, particularly lowering your carbs and really eating a diet that's low glycemic, lower in carbs and sugar is going to not allow you to have as much insulin resistance in that middle. So there's two kinds of weight gain. There's that weight gain that comes along with menopause that actually can even be helpful with low dose estrogen. And then there's the weight gain that some people experience when they go on hormones which I don't find a lot on the low doses, but that can be in more of a fluid retention. I blow up, my breasts blow up, I blow up with fluid. And that can happen, but it happens in a small group of women. And I would just continue to titrate their estrogen down to trying to find the right balance between not having side effects and yet getting rid of their symptoms. Great, thank you. And we're gonna talk more about um, uh, you know, nutrition in part two, um, especially for runners, because we do need carbs. And we know that that's an important part of running. So we're, we're going to talk to registered dietitian in part two to kind of how to balance that. Um, and then I'm just going to one last one for Toby, because we have a lot of really good questions. Um, but does, does hormone replacement therapy, and this is um, pertinent to recovery in runners, uh, raise your resting heart rate? Um, I don't find it does. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't have not found any literature that shows that that's the case. Um, so, um, I, I would say no, um, each person of course is individual. Um, I think that not feeling good in menopause with hot flashes and moodiness and not sleeping and things like that probably increase your resting heart rate a little bit more. So, um, I think that's probably a hard thing to measure, you know, um, because you're dealing with menopause and maybe if you say someone completely, um, in their forties what their resting heart rate was. And then when you put somebody on hormones, but what role does menopause play in that? And then does hormone replacement therapy change that? Um, I don't find that it does. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we were talking about before, where there's some stressors in life that may raise your resting heart rate that don't have anything to do with, with physiologically what's going on, but psychologically what's going on and the stresses that we have. Um, well, 
really thank you um, to everybody who spoke tonight. Uh, we are, and thank you to everyone who, who joined us. We had, um, you know, 300, uh, almost 300 people sign up and we had the majority join us tonight. We are gonna send around a, a recording, a link to the recording. So if you joined us late, um, you can catch the beginning part of it. We will send around our contact information and a link to register for part two, which is on February 28th, same time, 7 p.m. on a Sunday evening. And we will have Amy Goldsmith from Kindred Nutrition, who's a registered dietitian, and um, Kelly Redman, who is a certified personal trainer. Both of them also master women. So, you know, it's always good to get your advice from, from people who um, can go through shared experiences and um, who can relate. And like Rachel said, get your advice from, from people who can, can understand runners and who can listen to you. And um, like Toby said, really listen to your fears and your experiences and, and, and take that time to listen. So we look forward to seeing um, hopefully all of you and feel free to share the link for registration with your friends that might want to join us for part two and, um, and please be in touch with any questions. So thanks everyone for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.